Hello, welcome to On the Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for many years. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Owen Jones. Owen is a political journalist and author. His books address the issues of social inequality and injustice, and Owen describes himself as a fourth-generation socialist. He's currently based in London, but he grew up in Stockport, Greater Manchester. Owen Jones, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch. It's a massive honour to be here. When you're ready, can you tell us about a significant bereavement loss you've experienced, Owen, in your life? Yeah, my my dad. My dad died uh, January 13th, uh, 2018. And uh, he he died of advanced prostate cancer. Right. So I remember that well because he, uh, in terms of uh, the diagnosis, I remember this. It was, uh, well, it was, I think, the beginning of 2015, he started kind of having uh, back problems. Um, and uh, he had occasional kind of problems walking. I remember this because it's during the general election campaign of 2015. I was rushing around and stuff. And I live in London. They live in Edinburgh, him and my mum. And uh, I met, he was at a Chinese restaurant and he just collapsed um, and he couldn't get up. So he was rushed to hospital for tests. And then they started to worry it was, that it could be a form of, of cancer. Um, and I can't remember the name of one they suspected, cancer of the blood, not, not leukaemia, um, of the bone marrow. I can't remember what that's called. But in the end, that he was in the hospital. And I remember I went up to Edinburgh with my partner to support my mum. And uh, I was uh, shopping or something, waiting for my mum to text. And then my mum texted. My mum's quite blunt. Uh, my mum texted, not good, cancer, two to four years expectancy, which is quite, <laughs> quite the way to find that one out. Uh, and I remember I kind of went into shock at the time. And my partner was like, we have to go to hospital. And I uh, and I was like, no, 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 we've got, I've got to buy a jumper. I've got to buy a jumper. Um, I think anyone who's gone through a kind of slightly shocking experience knows, knows what that's like. And I remember going to the hospital and... Um, and uh, my dad was kind of, I think he was drugged up and he was being lowered into bed. And my mum was standing by the window, type, just frantically hitting a mobile phone. And uh, my partner stayed in the corner. I went to sit to give my mum a hug and she went, don't, because she knew she'd start weeping. Mm. And I tried again, she was like, don't. And then uh, we went to the pub and just cried all afternoon. And then I remember coming back, we were in the driving into the car park of the hospital and my mum was in so much shock, she crashed into another car. And uh, someone came out and I just explained, I'm sorry, her husband's just being diagnosed with terminal cancer. It was really bizarre the whole day, to be honest. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was, he, his life, he was given two to four years and he was one of those cases where all, he was very unlucky even by the standards of, of that diagnosis. Because as some of your listeners will know, actually prostate cancer is one of the, if you're going to choose a cancer, a better cancer to get. It's got something like an 80% survival rate over five years. Advanced prostate cancer, where it spreads to your bone, there's, there's very little hope. You've got 6%. Um, and he was unlucky. He, he, in the end, he, he lived for two and a half years. And 
deteriorated uh, quite dramatically towards the end. So he's originally put into a Marie Curie hospice in uh, November of uh, 2017. And if he, when he was being taken there, he uh, he had this, well, at first kind of, I mean, he was never really reconciled to death. And the idea, if you hear hospice, you hear you're going to die. And he just associated that instantly in a, in, you know, he was frightened. But actually, he he, he absolutely loved that place. Um, and uh, when he was asked, uh, would he prefer to die at home or in the hospice? He said the hospice. But he, you know, I remember going to visit him uh, in November 2017, sat with him. I got some beer, he had a whiskey. And uh, he, uh, he... He he just said, I just really, really like this place. The nurses were just the most caring, attentive uh, people I've ever met. Uh, and uh, But that was the beginning of, you know, he, he was he came back over Christmas um, and then he was, t- he was taken back in January. That's, that's, when he, that's when he died. Just to go back to when you got the text message from your mum <laughs> and you were saying how it was very direct... Yes. And um, can, can I just ask what, throughout that two and a half year period, what sort of conversations did you as a family have? Did your dad have about dying? Did he talk about it? No. Um, I mean, to be honest, I remember even December 2017. So about, this was over Christmas. So this was, uh, this was about three weeks before he died. And he said to me, I'm not dying, I'm getting better. Um, so he he never and I remember even month I think the Christmas before that he said and he was he died at the age of seventy two and he was like you know, and he was tearing up a bit you know kind of I'll be uh, you know I hope you know I'll be here when I'm maybe I'm eighty or ninety and he was never reconciled uh, to dying which is weird because I, weird I sometimes get these dreams since it's sometimes again anyone who's had a bereavement you sometimes have these slightly uh, intrusive dreams where they suddenly appear and you kind of the next day it kind of throws you off a bit and uh because we don't have dreams about him where he's like i'm dying and he says um uh you know my granddad died a few months before he died and uh he you know you know when i have the dream about him he'd be going you know i'm going the same way as your granddad and he'd be very forlorn about it but in real life he what he just he never i never spoke about death with him ever and a week before he died, the only hint I got is when uh, I, w- I rushed up because he, he he basically in the end died because he caught a cold, um, and and you know when you get to that stage, that's enough to finish you off. And his condition deteriorated, so I rushed up to Edinburgh and had to help him. There was this whole routine. He uh, he, uh, he always used to sit in his armchair in the living room reading and listening to Bob Dylan, the band, and so on. And uh, he, uh, with this routine, get him out of the chair, into a wheelchair, wheel him to the kitchen, remove the wheelchair, get him to stand up, press the, uh, his hands pressed on the table, then put a chair in. But he, at that point, he said, I'm scared. And that was the only hint I got where maybe he... And the other, I mean, even, I think on the, the Monday, so five days before he died, and a doctor, an incredible doctor again, you know, we were all gathered round. They said to my family, how's everyone doing? How are, how are you all doing? And then to my dad asked, you know, and how are you doing? And he, that's when he said, I just, I just feel uh, like my life's in a terrible place or something. And, uh, and the doctor said, so, you know, you've got this, you've, you've got this illness. Um, you may, you may get over this, but you won't go back to where you were before um, or you will die. 
And I remember that moment he flicked his eyes directly to me at the end of the bed in a kind of, I can't believe this is happening kind of way. So I don't know. I mean, the experiences people have of death are very different, um, obviously. And, uh, you know, sometimes I've seen films where people kind of are reconciled to dying and it's it's kind of, you know. But I, just to be blunt, my dad, he he just wasn't. He didn't. I don't think he ever... I'm sure he did in his mind. I don't know. I mean, I've, I've spoken to people since. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But I never, ever, ever had a talk with him about dying. And he, even towards the end, had a sense that he he, he wasn't going to die. How is that for you? Very odd. I mean, I think the problem I have is what I find... I, the things that I remember... Because for me, you know, the, the hospice was just an incredible, warm loving, caring place where the nurses were just uh, just astonishing, absolutely astonishing, and just made the absolute difference. And, and at the same time, you know, the, the dip, and I've spoke to other people in this, in this kind of obvious situation, millions of people have to go through, where you get stuck in that last week where their, their condition deteriorates very rapidly and you kind of, you get stuck in that moment and can't remember when they weren't very ill, you know, when they were just healthy and, you know... Uh, in, my, in my dad's case, dancing around in a very slightly embarrassing dad way to to his uh, 1960s music. Um, so you, you, I, I guess that's what I'm, you know, kind of trapped in that sense. But also, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it, it, I've, I was disturbed. I've, I've always been, I found it kind of slightly unsettling that he never, never spoke about death or seemed prepared. To, to die but I don't know do you ever get prepared to die I mean the problem is it's a taboo in our culture death it's very difficult to talk about mm. uh, even if you're not approaching death mm. um, but no I don't He. I just he never he never had the sense that he was whatever being prepared for death is he wouldn't have counted I don't think and you know when he uh, the last conversation I had with him was on the Thursday morning about 24 hours or less uh, sorry 48 less than 48 hours before he died and I was like, uh, you feeling better than yesterday, last night? And he was like, I'm not sure, I think so. Kind of a bit kind of narky, <laughs> you know, n- never anything about, about death or, or talking about death or what that was like. And never, never really spoke about it. And then he died a couple of days after. Yeah, and I remember that very vividly. It was, uh, you know, obviously, um, you know, on the Friday when he didn't wake up, Again, the last kind of conscious thing I recall him doing was my mum put headphones in his ears to listen to the 1960s music he'd always uh, listened to, nice. uh, like Bob Dylan and so on, uh, which I always associate with my dad. And uh, and he kind of moved to say he wanted them taken out. Um, and then, you know, he had this rattle in his uh, chest. His chest kept filling with fluid and they were doing their best to take out the fluid and so on. Because I remember what happened on, on, on the Sunday when he was taken to the hospice and he was in a very bad way. And uh, I, I remember him sitting at home, sitting in his wheelchair, just saying over and over again, I feel so terrible, I feel so awful. And we took him in a taxi, me and my mum, to the hospice. And... Uh, they put him. They the problem was his oxygen, blood oxygen levels had collapsed, which is why he was so bad. And it was incredible because he was then put in. Uh, you know, oxygen was put into his blood, and he 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 his condition noticeably really uh, improved. Actually, it was quite strange when you're in that situation because you're like, oh, he's getting better now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but obviously, what what had happened is because of the incredible care at Marie Curie, they made him feel very comfortable um, when he was at extreme, the lowest point. But he, 
it, it what what had happened was is because of this basically cold his uh his which his body couldn't cope with and his chest was filling with with fluid so they kept on having to take that out but what was happening is his his breath was getting you know louder and more rattly mm-hmm. i remember that rattle very vividly and it's i don't know kind of odd because i remember him talking about his granddad uh, Welsh granddad, so the the, the North Walian term is Tide. He told me about Tide, his last moments, and my dad always recalled the death rattle, and it was weird because that's that's obviously what ended up. Uh, I hear my dad, you know, so I remember hearing that very vividly, and um, I remember those last few moments where his breath was just getting more, you know, more and more strained. I mean, he was unconscious, um, and we were, you know, we were playing his favourite music. Um, sitting around him saying, we love you, we love you. Uh, and I remember he seemed to tear up that, you know, is that him tearing up? Or, you know, could he hear us? I don't know. Uh, and uh, and then it just got, and we were, I was prepared for what would happen because I was told about that last breath that they take, which could be uh, stop and then suddenly breathe again. Um, There's sometimes a pause, isn't there? Exactly, and that's what happened. And I remember that. And I remember my my twin sister, just I remember her look of, well, everyone had this look of panic slightly, kind of, I can't believe this has happened. Um, And then, you know, he did his last breath. And then that was that. Uh, And my mum said, oh, I'm going to miss him so much. And my brother said, we're all going to miss him. But it was, it's a kind of slightly out-of-body experience at that that point, watching, I've never seen anyone die. I've never seen... uh, I've never seen a, a, you know a dead body before, and it was my dad. And we came in to see him afterwards, and they they made him look, you know, they did every, you know, remember put a flower on his pillow. Uh, but I looked at him and I thought that wasn't my dad anymore. Um, so I just, but I just remember those last moments um, very vividly. And, and the nurse said, "There's a great energy in this room because uh, we had the music playing. There was uh, six of us surrounding the bed, um, saying we love you and so on." So I think, you know, if you're going to die, that's as good a way to die as, as possible, to be honest. Uh, you know, I say that, I, get, I mean, this is... Uh, my pa- my partner's mum took her own life two months earlier. Um, and, I, you know, I, if I compare the two, uh, you know, no death is easy, but, but you know, we, we were prepared for him to die and it was in the best possible environment. Marie Curie wants to change the way the UK talks about death and dying. We believe an open conversation with loved ones now can make life better at the end. For more information on how to start the conversation and free tools and resources to help, visit mariecurie.org.uk forward slash talkabout. Marie Curie, for life to the last. Such significant losses you've both faced, you and your partner, around a short period of time as well, and your granddad as well, you know, it's kind of... Yeah, he was like my second dad as well. It wasn't an ideal period, I'm not going to lie. So, yeah. My, yeah, my granddad died in July. I mean, he's very old. He was, he was 91, I think. Uh, ni- yeah, 91, he died just for his 92nd birthday. But, yeah, he, uh, he, used, to, he used to look after my, me and my twin a lot when we were growing up. And then and then uh, four months later, my, my, my lot, very long-term partner's mum died and then uh, of suicide. And then, and, yeah, and, then, and then my dad died. It was not a great six-month period. Um... But it was just, for me, it was just, uh, I'm just beyond grateful for what Mario Curie did because um, that is as good a send-off as you can get. You know, he wasn't in, you know, he he was only in pain before he went to the hospice. You know, when he was in the hospice, he was in no pain. Uh, he, was, he was very comfortable. Um, 
you know, and you know, he just slipped out of consciousness and and, and died. And what more can you kind of hope for in that circumstance? You, you, he slipped away. Yeah. You know, he didn't suffer in the end. So I just want to think a bit, get you to talk a bit about your grief. And it's not even been two years no. yet, has it? But but how have things been? Um, I think, I mean, grief is, it's an odd one because I, 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 afterwards I, I wrote a piece about it actually, to, which I found quite therapeutic trying to work my way through it. And I spoke to other people who'd grieved. Um, and you know, it, someone said it's, it's like there's a landscape without a map. You, you, you're not, I mean, I remember when he died, it was a kind of, what do we do now? And I remember what we did because we, uh, the next day, <laughs> it's very odd when this happens because you, you know, you, you, no one gives you a kind of document. So now, so now this is what happens. So I remember we went to, uh, went to a cafe, you know, and then, uh, and then decided we were going to watch a film and we went to watch, uh, three billboards um and this was quite this was this was quite helpful at the time it was very dark humor uh well the film is um but in it <laughs> honestly it's so ridiculous the guy one of the main characters has cancer and then to spare his family watching him suffer uh by watching him die of cancer he kills himself and i just remember looking around at everyone like you could not make this up this is ridiculous but it was quite funny in a weird way <laughs> But I remember the, the next few, yeah, I, I, I found it, it creeps up on you. I think that's the thing. Um, you suddenly have these moments where, uh, you know, their voice and how their appearance or all kind of mannerisms and phrases they have are, are very vivid all of a sudden. Or you'll you'll hear someone from the distance who kind of sounds like them and it, it all comes back. I remember, I, I, as I said, I had, I had these very, sometimes I have these very um, slightly unsettling dreams about him. I remember once I was um, I was at a dream about where well, it was his funeral, but it wasn't his funeral because obviously I was at his funeral, uh, and someone was giving a sermon, and suddenly my dad was in the front row of his own funeral, teared up like he always teared up when he um, when he was very passionate or, or emotional, you know, he was in, in in about something. Obviously, as people tear up to do, but I mean he. He, you know, he things he was, you know, if he got really passionate about talking about his music, he'd tear up. But I just remember him, you know, in this dream, standing there, teared up. No, I mean, I found it, it was difficult because both me and my partner had to go through grief at the same time. And grief is very, is actually can be very stressful. Um, and it manifests itself in lots of ways. You can get quite angry. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I just found it, it was that sense of being very lost and it, uh, this sense of, um, and everything I do now is so informed by what my dad did. You know, my dad was a socialist, um, very political, and I inherit. You know, for example, he loved American history, and I went on to I did a master's in American history. So, in lots of ways, the stuff I do I wouldn't do without my dad. You know, I inherited that from my father, and uh, and you held him up high. Very much so, yeah. Of course, I mean, look, I had. You know, we, we were very different, me and my dad. You know, my dad was born. Uh, to a single parent family in 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 Wallasey, uh, from a Welsh, very Welsh Methodist family, uh, Merseyside being the capital of North Wales, and uh, he um, he grew up as an only child in a single parent family. His mum was a nurse, um, and uh, he only started learning English when he was seven because he only spoke Welsh till then. But he lived in a different universe than me. You know, I culturally was very very different from my dad. You know, my dad was very into football and. Um, you know, kind of, I suppose, more traditionally kind of, you know, a man of his era, I suppose. Mm. Uh, but yeah, of course. I mean, uh, you know, and he, I love my dad very much. And, you know, I felt he was very proud of me and what I'd done, 
you know, he the stuff that I fought for, which he had fought for for so long. But yeah, I mean, it, it is very, you know, it is like a part of your life is ripped away. And that's very, very strange. Mm. You know, and I still have my phone, my, my parents' phone number is down as folks. Uh, you know, it's my folks or whatever. Uh, you, you know, and even having, you know, my dad's phone number in there where it's got my text messages between us. And mm. it, it it's just, it just, for me, it just creeps up on you. There, there are moments which you associate with him. There are... Um, things you'd think he would have enjoyed that happen, uh, things, you know, if I hear about Everton, instantly I think about my dad. He was a very, very passionate Everton fan. Um, if I hear Bob Dylan, for example, or Bree Springsteen, all of those things, yeah, I mean, it, it you know, it all floods back. And, and he, it's like he's there still. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a non-believer, I, I, you know, I, it's weird how you get older, cliches start to make sense. When people say, you know, people live on after them in other people. And that is true, you know. And, you know, he's 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 got four kids. Uh, he's now got three grandkids, one born after. You know, that there is quite literally genetically, but in, in other ways, culturally, bits of my dad uh, have, have live on in that sense. And I think even if you're a, a boring old atheist like me, you could still believe that people live on after themselves. They still have, you know, their their legacy uh, is 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 very much part of who they are, and that and that that is very much alive today. You know, I've still got his stupid, you know, his mannerisms. Sometimes uh, I I have some of his mannerisms. Uh, when I get quite, um, he used to stress about very silly things, and I I will sometimes do the same thing. And uh, so you just you know that I think is quite comforting that you realise that even if you don't believe in an afterlife, uh, though I hugely respect people who do. Um, that you can still have that sense that they are still with you in that sense, and that's comforting. Very yeah. comforting. Very yeah. comforting. Yeah. Oh, nice. um, uh, but it's there's no right way of dealing with with grief, and you know, and there's no there's no. I also like there's no right way to die. I, I had this friend who died at the age of thirty two of motor neuron disease, which is you know a horrific thing to go through, and in his last you know, two or three years alive, he, he, he just decided I'm just going to embrace life in all its way. And, you know, and he, what he, you know, I learned from that before my dad died that there's no right way to die, but there is a right way to live. And that's to think to yourself, I'm going to embrace life in, in all of its, you know, all that it has to offer. And for someone like Gordon Aitman, who died far younger than my father, um, he was forced to, conf- you know, he could have gone, well, you know, he, instead he he learned the value of life and he just embraced it and travelled and tried to make sure he didn't, you know, things like, why am I having stupid arguments with people? All this, you know, am I going to lie on my deathbed thinking I wish I'd had more stupid arguments with people? Um, yeah, and I just think that's what, you know, we will all die one day and it will be sooner or later for all of us. Um, but... You know, when you when you go through watching people die, you, you realise the the value of life and and embracing it as as best you can. Can I ask? Do you ever think about your own death? Yeah, yeah, of course. And um, I, I mean, fortunately, without getting morbid, because of my job as a journalist and campaigner, I uh, I, I am unfortunately subject to death threats from far right individuals. So and I'm quite literally forced to confront quite graphic uh, imagery involving my own death. Yeah, I mean, of course, I think. Um, I, I I think because three people who are you know very much the integral parts of my life in mm. different ways died in in such a short space of time, I definitely thought thought more about it. And uh, you know, I'm, 
you know, and you know, I remember my my partner too had cancer and got cancer when he was twenty eight. Um, so you know, he really much had to confront cancer much earlier than most people. So I think all of those things together definitely made me, you know, think of death as not when you're a kid. It feels so abstract and. You feel like you're going to live forever when you're when you when you're quite young, even as a teenager. But as you watch people die around you, you just realise, you know, we are we are flesh and bone, and uh, and uh, and 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 one day we have to accept that we will die. And the best you can hope for is just to make the best of your life as is, and hope, you know, I suppose to to die as my dad did, surrounded by his family, telling them how much he loved him with his repetitive blues music playing in the background. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd want that, not necessarily the music, but being surrounded yeah, by... Yeah, I mean, exactly. And, you know, and I just remember... Even in his last few days, you know, he was still making his really quite ridiculous dad's jokes. Uh, I mean, he'd, he'd make the same jokes every over and over again, and we'd all groan, it was all part of the... You know, and, you know, he, he died in comfort, he died surrounded by love, he died with nurses... Uh, and in a hospice which provided the most loving, caring environment which supported the people around him. We we all felt emotionally supported. Mm. And that was important for him because if we felt a mess, uh, then then he would have noticed and that would have made his last few moments very difficult. But he died as best as anyone can ever die. I, I'm trying to imagine a better way to die. But at the end of the day, we, we all, you know, we don't know the circumstances of our own death, but, you know, it just made me realise that you... Um, you just you just have to embrace and appreciate the time that we that we have, and um, we are all defined by the people around us, the people we love, and you know, and you know, in that sense, my my dad, you know, left uh, a very loving family, people who they are now dads to my two brothers who uh, who love their their kids very very much, and and that's the legacy he left, and and I think that's that's something we can we can all kind of look to is as a good thing so I, I don't you know it, there is the grief definitely which is always there and it's like a background noise everyone knows I think who's who's had a loss knows that kind of background noise of grief that sometimes can suddenly jump up on you um, yeah that was the other, that, my mum called it that it's like a minefield you're walking through a minefield something you don't know it'll detonate but it will you know there'll be a moment where you you know you'll, I don't know I'll as I've said I'll hear Bruce Springsteen and it will suddenly flood back but I do look at the fact he le- he left a really good legacy and and he does live on through the people he loved. So that's could be worse, couldn't it? Mm-hmm. I just we've got a few minutes left, and I just wanted to go back to you know that conversation about our own mortality, mm-hmm. for, for, certainly for our listeners as well, and thinking about some of the practical things like you know writing a will or planning for a funeral. Mm-hmm. Are they are they some of the things you've thought about? Yeah, well, in fact, that's a good reminder because I've been nagged to do my will. Uh, so I have to, yes, I, I mean, I hate Do it. Uh, yeah, exactly. Everyone should do their will. Uh, and uh, I still got the email I need to apply to to uh, go through that whole process. Yeah, I think it's very important we all do that. And um, I mean, I remember that after my dad died, going through, you know, the bureaucratic stuff, which was kind of strange. <laughs> going to a feudal register, going through, and it was quite ridiculous kind of... Uh, my mum wanted quite a simple funeral and they were, you know, going through all the kind of different stylistic options, which you have to do. I mean, that's part yeah. of it. But it is Brochures. Brochures. I know it's like brochures of death. <laughs> um, but that's part of it. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, I just kind of found it quite funny at the time. But yeah, I think, um, I think certainly a will is very important. You've got to, um, 
you know, making it as easy for those who who, who care for you as, as possible, particularly if it's sudden, you know, sometimes, like, you know, death can happen very quickly. Mm. Um, and, and the problem is it's such a taboo talking about death, just talking about death instantly. People think this is the most, well, it is quite literally the most morbid subject you can talk about. Uh, it's not exactly kind of uh, Friday night party sort of chat, is it? No. Um, let's talk about death. Um, so, but yeah, we do have to prepare for it. And, you know, it's not like we have to spend every waking hour contemplating our mortality and what that means in practice. But we, you know, we should make, you know, doing a will, going through those formalities is, is very important because otherwise those you leave behind you have to deal with the grief, but they also have to do with the kind of at, when they're grieving, uh, all the complexities. Uh, that, that, that come can, with that as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, Owen, um, just before we finish, can I ask what will your legacy be? Oh my god! Well, what what I, it's like linked to my dad. What 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 I'm passionate about is uh, taking on social injustice, but particularly I, I want to encourage, always want to encourage other people to do that. And um, so, if I think about, uh, you know, we live in a rich country in which people live in poverty. Uh, we live in a country where the wealthy do better than ever, but our national health service struggles to uh, do what it's there to do, which is to care, as it does so wonderfully, but under so much strain uh, for those it, it exists to support, uh, where, you know, everything from the number of people who live on the streets and this wealthy nation, whilst people live in mansions, uh, and to encourage people to take that injustice on. You know, that's what I've always tried to do with, with my work, to say to people that you shouldn't accept injustice as a, an act of God or, or or just like the weather, you know, where you can complain about it raining, but there's nothing you can do about it. And I, I see injustice as something which is created consciously by human beings, but can be consciously overcome by human beings as well. And that's what, for me, hope means. It means that all injustice can be overcome with enough determination, resilience um, and, and, and solidarity. And... Uh, so for me, I, I've I've always wanted to encourage people to do that to to say to themselves that injustice is not something they should accept as a fact of life. Grit your teeth, take the blows, but actually you should stand up for yourself. You should fight injustice. You should never just be resigned to injustice. So for me, that's that's certainly in the work as a journalist, as an author, uh, a broadcaster. That's that's the the key kind of thread that runs throughout all my work, trying to encourage people not to be resigned to injustice, but to but to confront it with with all the the collective might that human beings have always used to overcome injustice, which is how we have all the rights, which are sometimes imperiled today. Women's rights, workers' rights, LGBTQ rights, the rights of minorities. They're not given to us as acts of generosity and charity by the powerful, but they're won through the struggle and determination of people from below. And, you know, that for me is something I was trying to encourage people to do. And I spend a lot of time with striking workers, uh, or, uh, you know, with people who who fight for the rights of those who are oppressed and don't have a voice. Um, and, and and I think that is one of the most important things we can all do to, 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 to confront injustice wherever it emerges. And using your voice. Exactly. When you have a platform, to use that platform to, you know, to give a voice to people who, who are marginalised, demonised, ignored, hated altogether... Um, and you know, if you if you have a platform that you should not use it to promote yourself, but you should use it to advance the causes which exist to overcome the injustices that don't just scar our society, but define it in lots of ways. And I think that for me is is uh, something I, I partly learned from my dad. Yeah. 
Owen, thank you for bringing your voice along today and your story. It's been great to meet you. It's been a real honour. Thank you so much. Thanks. So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help. From planning ahead to coping with bereavement, you can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. Join us next time when we'll be talking to singer and actress Beverly Knight. This podcast is made by Marie Curie, a national charity that supports people affected by terminal illness. For more information and support, you can visit our website, mariecurie.org.uk. The podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision. The music featured is Time Lapse by Pan Oceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.